Children are dismissed to children's church. As Cooper waves at me as he walks by the door. Bye, buddy. I'm definitely going to kick that if that stays there. Let's move that out of the way. Let's see if he'll sit. All right. I'm pretty sure the speakers kept getting further and further apart, too, so the sound guys must know that I keep walking because they're just giving me more room. I appreciate that. I'm tempted now to use the puppet background, though. Like, now that I saw the backdrop up here and saw the teaching through the window, I wonder if that would, like, keep your attention better. If I, like, hunch down. I don't know if I'd use a puppet or just, like, stick my head through the window. You just watch me do, watch me do John 6 through the red barn. <laughs> All right, Uh, the scripture will not be on the screen behind me, so you're going to have to use your Bibles. I hope you brought them. And if not, fair warning, you're going to need them again next week and the week after. We use them constantly here. So, you've you've had warning, bring your Bible. This morning, as we go into John 6, I get an absolute treat. Because this is the feeding of 5,000 people. And this is one of the stories that we start teaching the kids Right at the youngest age, they know the story of the loaves and the fishes. The loaves and the fishes. And they know there's five and that there's two. And that 5,000 people get to eat from them. And this morning, we're going to read that together. But what's beautiful about reading it from the Gospel of John is that everything changes. Because you and I both know from reading the Gospel of John that John doesn't just mimic stories from other Gospels He includes the conversations that went around with him because he writes his gospel later. So there's purpose to the stories that he includes, right? John's notorious for including stories that you don't see in the other gospels. But then when he grabs this one, and this one's been repeated in all three of the other ones, he adds half a chapter of commentary that follows this miracle that the other gospel writers didn't include. They simply leave it at the demonstration of power. He takes this bread and takes this fish and thousands of people eat the end. And everyone goes, very good, very good. And John goes, wait, they met at the city the next day. Like there was a huge uproar. Like they talked about this for hours and hours. They debated in the streets. Like people need to know that happened. So John writes that whole uh, section down and that's in the second half of chapter 6. But something happened, especially to me this week as I'm reading through this story of 5,000 people eating this bread and fish. John describes this event pointing to something that I hadn't seen before. But now that I see it, I'm going to teach it to you. You're going to see it so clearly. Jesus came to fulfill the role of Moses to the people. Jesus is going to demonstrate that through this miraculous feeding. John is going to include Pieces of information in the story that you're not going to see in Matthew, that you're not going to see in Mark, and you're not going to see in Luke. Pay attention to those clues and what they reveal to you. Because something happens as you begin to understand the identity of Jesus. It changes the way you follow him. It changes the way you worship him. So, consider those things. And as we read through John 6, I'm going to be referencing Exodus. I'm going to be referencing Deuteronomy and 2 Kings as well from the Old Testament. Let's read this together. So if you have your Bibles, this is the very first verse of John, chapter 6. Sometime after this, 
Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Tiberias, if you know it by its Roman name. And a great crowd of people, they followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Catch that as well. They followed him because of his signs. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. This is something we don't teach when we do it on flannel graph. So when you're showing Jesus and the disciples walking up the hill, and you stick them to the top of the hill, the Sunday school teacher never says, and pay attention, Passover was just about to happen. You don't include that, because the story's not about Passover. But is it? Why does John include that when Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't? Why are all these people following Jesus? Because of their incredible faith? No, because they saw him do something miraculous. And they've chosen to follow him again to see if he'll do something else miraculous. But keep in mind, Passover's days away. Keep in mind the season that they're in. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming towards him. So he says to poor Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I tried to imagine this taking place. Jesus has his disciples that are on the side of the hill. Philip, what do you think? How are we going to feed them supper? And Philip, who, Lord? There's only like 12 of us. No, no, Philip, them. How will we feed them? And Philip turns, and as he turns, he makes eye contact with 5,000 men, followed by their wives, followed by their kids. Some commentators say 15, 20,000 people isn't out of the question. Philip turns and sees a crowd of that multitude, and he looks back at Jesus, looks back at this crowd, looks back at Jesus. What? How are we going to feed them? Jesus, do you know where we are? We're on the far side of the sea. Like, where's the nearest town? We're in the middle of nowhere. We're in the wilderness. Where are we going to feed these people? Jesus, of course, knows what he's doing. Why? Because this was purposeful. The fact that Jesus knew the crowds would follow him because of the crowds who have already followed him as he does these signs and wonders. As Jesus and the disciples head out to a distant location, a large hillside far away from any populated area, intentionally knowing what's going to happen. And then as this crowd approaches and Jesus teaches and it comes to mealtime, Jesus knows how he can use this moment to do an incredible sign. He's thought about this. Philip answers Jesus. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So for some of you, half a year's wages, right? $50,000, $60,000. And you're a youth pastor, about $20,000. Half a year's wages to give everyone a nibble. Like, not to fill them with supper, a nibble. So, like, Philip is just lost in this question. Not only do none of us possess half a year's wages, Jesus, we quit our jobs to follow you. Jesus, you're unemployed. We're homeless. We have zero money. We don't have 40 grand. We don't have 50 grand. We don't even have buns. We had to steal them from the kid. And you're going to find that out in about another verse. But they don't even have bread, it doesn't seem like. They steal it from some poor kid out of his lunchbox. I don't even know if they asked permission. 
Like, that's what they have. And Jesus is like, just feed 15,000 people. You know, Philip's pulling his pockets inside out. All he's got in his pocket's a mask. He's got nothing else. How are we going to feed these people? Another one of his disciples, good old Andrew, that was Peter's brother, he speaks up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. I stole them from him, but how far? I'm just kidding, it doesn't say that. How far will they go among so many people? This is neat. This is neat because at this event, there is somebody that has food. Somehow this food has been brought to the Lord. It's five small loaves and it's two fish. John makes a distinction that no one else has made yet in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't mention this. What kind of loaves are these? They're barley, right? Barley, poor man's bread. The commoner's bread. Not wheat, but barley. Barley being the first crop that's harvested. Barley being the bread that they would eat at the festival of first fruits. That would coincide with when they would celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. This would happen around the time of Passover. This is the season of Passover. And this boy has barley bread. John is going to bring that up three times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record that. John wants you to know it, so pay attention. Andrew brings this to the Lord. Jesus says in verse 10, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are let, left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves. He mentions it again, left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, this is what they began to say. Surely, this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. A few incredible things going on here. One, Baskets left over. How many baskets? Twelve. Twelve being symbolic of the tribes of Israel. So God provides for his people miraculously. And how much is left over after the people at that moment receive their fill? Enough for all of God's people to have more. Twelve baskets full of this is left over. This barley bread for the people at the time of Passover. They picked up the leftovers, which is going to be in contrast to what we're about to look at in Exodus. When God rained down manna from heaven through Moses to the people to provide for them. When leftovers weren't allowed to be kept. But Jesus' leftovers extend into the next day. And finally, what might be my favorite part. Surely the prophet is here. The one who's supposed to come into the world. So the people try to make him their king. Do you know where that's from? That's from Deuteronomy. You remember Deuteronomy. That's when Moses had led the people right up to the edge of the promised land. And as they got to the edge, he stopped and he retaught them the law. He goes through the different laws that God gave them in Exodus. And he includes the obedience that God's going to require of them when they enter the promised land. 
So there's no narrative taking place in Deuteronomy. They've simply got to their location and they stop and Moses teaches them throughout the whole book. It's just a recording of his teaching. And in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, this is what is recorded. Moses and the Lord having this conversation. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God and Mount Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said this. Let us not hear the voice of our Lord God nor see this great fire anymore. We'll die. So the Lord said to me, What they say, it's good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Deuteronomy chapter 18. That reading was from verse 15 down to verse 19. So the people had known for 2,000 years that one day a prophet would come. One who, spoken by Moses, would be like Moses. Would come from their own people and he would have the very words of God. So they waited. They waited for the prophet to come. But they hadn't seen him. Now you've got this large group of people in the wilderness, separated from any way to be fed. And the Lord, through Jesus, miraculously takes this small amount of food and multiplies it to meet everyone's needs. And the crowd's first reaction is, this is him. This is him. This is the Moses man. This is the prophet. He was going to come just like him. That's the king. We have to let everyone know. And all of a sudden, this word is spreading amongst the crowd. We need to take him to Jerusalem. We're going to crown him. We're going to defeat the Romans. Death to Caesar. I know, right? Death to Caesar. We're going to crown this guy. It's over. It's all over. And the crowd is looking for Jesus. Where is he? Somebody grab him. He's gone. He's gone. He's went up on the mountainside to go hide. Why? Because they're not going to drag him to Jerusalem. They're not going to force him to be the king that overthrows the Romans. That's not the kingdom Jesus came to establish. And that's not the enemy that Jesus came to defeat. He's not coming after Roman soldiers and after Caesar and his throne. Jesus is coming after sin and death. And the throne that he's going to steal away is going to be Satan as prince of this world. Jesus is going to become king over this world, ascending to the throne of heaven, the right hand of God. That's the enemy he's going after. So he's not going to be dragged to the capital to be crowned king of Israel. He's come to be savior of the world. So Jesus steps away and goes into hiding so they can't grab him by force. People recognize something in this miracle that we can often miss. This is the prophet like Moses. So why do they draw that conclusion? Well, this reminds me, and maybe you see it too now, is the giving of manna in the wilderness. You remember, this comes from Exodus, 
from chapter 16. And as you read through chapter 16, the people are grumbling. They wish that they would have just stayed in their slavery because at least they were well fed as slaves. Where have you heard that? People wanting to stay slaves because they enjoy the comforts of it. The New Testament talks about people being slaves to sin, enjoying the darkness so much they don't want to come into the light. So God said, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. Meaning the giving of manna wasn't just a gift. The people were being put to the test. If I rain down this blessing on them, will they be obedient with it? What were they supposed to be obedient about? They're supposed to gather enough each day. They're supposed to trust God that it would be there in the morning. So they're not supposed to gather enough for the next day. Can they do it? Well, it says that many people went out and gathered much. Some people went out and gathered little, but those who gathered much had gathered just enough, and those who'd gathered little gathered just enough. But some gathered enough for the next day, and they tried to keep it overnight. But in the morning they woke up, and it was filled with maggots, and it had started to rot, because people were supposed to trust God that he would provide enough for them in the morning, and quail would come at twilight in the evening. This manna was called manna because they didn't know what it was. What is this? And God, through Moses, provided for the people miraculously on their way to salvation, on their way to the promised land, on their way to rest, on their way to their inheritance and their freedom. God took care of his people. You might also notice the multiplication of barley loaves it reminds us of Elisha. And you might miss this one. I had too many bookmarks this morning. This one is 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before 100 men, said the servant. But Elijah said, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate, and some had left over, according to the word of the Lord. So as Jesus takes his barley bread, multiplies it, and as the crowd is noticing that there's baskets being picked up afterward, knowing that Jesus had supernaturally done this because he wasn't carrying, contrary to popular belief, thousands of loaves of bread with him and his disciples. He's not only following in the footsteps of Elisha. We know that Elijah had kept the oil for the widow from running out. Manna in the desert is the sign of Moses. These are all New Testament symbols that the Jewish crowd is noticing. That's why they are responding in the way that they do because of the identity that's being revealed in Jesus. So as Matthew and Mark and Luke record this, and your eyes are drawn to the power of Jesus, John is showing that there were symbols in this story that draws people's attention to his identity. They're beginning to recognize him. 
And as you grow in that knowledge of Jesus, it changes the way that you follow him. But would it change the hearts of these people? How would they respond to this miracle? Would they pass the test? What's the test? It's would they follow him simply for the giving of bread because they're seeing signs and wonders, or would they recognize his true identity and follow him as king? Would they follow him as master? Would they follow him as Lord? Are they coming before him for the signs and wonders or in faith? And we need to know how the crowd responds. If you keep reading, the next recorded miracle is the walking on of water. John gives us like three verses. It's not the point. And he just keeps rolling through the story. You'd think walking on water would have its own chapter, especially with John being one of the disciples in the boat. You'd think this would be an incredible... John, just, he doesn't allow it to steal away from the story that he's telling, the identity of Jesus being revealed. But there's a clue in this story that I had never seen until this week as I read it again. So this is verse 16 of chapter 6 of John. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat. He was walking on the water. They were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. See, if you read this story in Matthew, you see Peter walk on the water. If you read this story in Mark, you see Jesus calm down the weather. But if you read this story in John, that's not included. John, who was there, doesn't make a big deal about Jesus calling out Peter and Peter placing his feet upon the water and standing, or even the supernatural event of the storm coming to a conclusion. John wants you to see who Jesus is. That's why he includes what Jesus said. It is I, don't be afraid. Now, like most of you, I do not speak a word of Greek or Hebrew. It makes no sense to me. So, you go to the commentaries and you read. What is going on in this statement? And as I was reading through the commentary, it said that when you look at it in Greek, when John records what Jesus said, it is I, don't be afraid. That's the same in Greek as it is when you translate Exodus chapter 3. When Moses comes before the burning bush and says, who are you? What am I supposed to tell God's people when I come back to Egypt to set them free? They're going to ask, who sent me? But how do I show them who you are? How do I reveal you to them? What do I say? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Tell them who I am. They'll know. Okay, I'll tell them. Just tell them I am. The same Greek phrasing here as that Hebrew in Exodus 3 translated to Greek is written. 
Jesus said to them, it's I. You don't have to be afraid. It's I. Like, that's amazing. After he got onto this boat, they immediately reached shore. I don't know what's all going on in that part. That immediately the boat was able to reach the shore after he got in. There's something going on there. I wonder why that happened that way. Why did John record it that way? Verse 22. So the next day, imagine the crowd when they wake up. Where did Jesus go? The next day, the crowd that had been staying on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, that Jesus hadn't entered entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats showed up from Tiberias, and they landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of him. That's where we're going to stop this morning. The next sermon in the Gospel of John, we're going to explain the conversation that Jesus has with the crowd when they get there. But the conversation is going to be about why. Why are you coming after me? Why are you following me? Why? Are you following after me because you want your fill? You've had bread, you've tasted it, now you'd like a little more? Why? Are you following me because I've revealed myself to be the king of kings and you now have faith? Why? The people are going to say, just show us a sign, we'll all believe. Like manna in the desert, that was amazing. Do something like that. If we see this supernatural bread, if we taste it, we'll know you're Moses. Why do you think the people ask for the sign of manna? I know I'm spoiling the rest of John 6, but it kind of fits, right? The people are going to ask him, just show us a sign, we'll believe in you. Like manna, for example, do that. Then we'll know you're Moses for sure. Jesus says, you want supernatural bread from heaven? I am the bread of life. You don't need me to make bread appear on the sand. That bread's not going to save you. Your ancestors ate that bread. They died. It didn't save them. Do you know what does save people? Me. Me. So the question I was thinking this week as I read this story is as Jesus reveals his identity to us, we get to choose why we follow him. As his identity has been revealed to you and to me, we can look back over the course of our lives and then answer plainly from our hearts, why are we here? Especially after this past year and a half. Kudos to any of you who've stuck this out. (laughs) After a pandemic has changed everything that we kind of knew about gathering together as a church and changed it. it seems like everything outside of church too. Why are you here? I was reading the verse on the wall from 2 Peter chapter 3. Growing in grace and knowledge. Jesus is revealing knowledge to them. His identity. What they're going to miss is his grace. His grace is the gift. But do you realize that knowledge is the mind and grace affects the heart? 
So once you understand who Jesus is, it changes your mind, it changes your heart, it changes your thoughts and your actions. And Jesus on full display is showing the people, I am the Moses to come. I'm him. Nicodemus is wrestling with this. The woman at the well in chapter 4, her eyes are opened to this. Jesus, when he heals the paralytic at the pool and stands up, the Pharisees can't stand this. What can't they stand? That Jesus healed someone? They can't stand that? No. What they can't stand is by Jesus declaring it okay to do that on the Sabbath, he's revealing himself to be God. They can't handle that knowledge. Because it's going to challenge everything that they love and know. As Jesus reveals himself as the next Moses, it's going to cause chapter 7 of John to be this incredible fight about his authority and identity. Jesus is going to forgive the adulterous woman in chapter 8, declaring himself to be the light of the world that shines in darkness. And for all of that chapter in chapter 9, people are going to be fighting about his identity. You're going to notice too in chapter 9, he's going to heal a man born blind. He's going to put mud on his eyes. He's going to wash it off. And he's going to be able to see again. That's going to cause this incredible fight that lasts all throughout chapter 10. And finally in chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. And this causes this incredible fight at the end of chapter 11 and 12. About the plot to kill Jesus. Why? Because he's revealed his identity. Four. There's four miracles they believed that only the Messiah could perform. The Messiah would be able to heal a leper. The Messiah would be able to cast out a demon for someone who couldn't even speak the name of the demon. The Messiah would be able to heal someone with a birth defect. Lame from birth. Blind from birth. And the fourth one. Only the Messiah God's king would be able to resurrect someone who had been dead over three days. The Jews believed that, and you better believe they were watching for that. Because no holy man, no rabbi could perform those four things. So when Jesus heals the leper, it causes a stir. That's why Jesus sends that leper to go to the priest to show and reveal that he has been cleansed. Why he heals the man who can't speak, who is filled with a demon, and it shocks the crowd because it's never been done. And the Pharisees start to investigate him. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record the other two. They don't record the man being healed, who's blind from birth, and they don't record the resurrection of Lazarus. Four days dead. John includes those stories. And after the man is healed who's born blind, it causes an incredible uproar. Because Jesus is putting on full display the knowledge of himself as master and salvation, right? Redeemer. Those are two different phrases. Lord being master, Savior being redemption of people. Moses was the redeemer. King David, their master. Like Jesus is revealing himself to be those kinds of things. And finally, When he resurrects Lazarus after four days, it says the Jews at that time plot to kill him. 
They can't allow him to walk the streets anymore. He's fully revealed himself to be Messiah. There's no doubt about it anymore. He is who he claims to be. He needs to die now. And this is where I offer to you one last time that question. Why do you follow him? John is trying to get up, he's trying to get across to the crowd. Jesus is who he claims to be. His identity has been made clear. How will you respond? Will you respond like the Pharisees who plot to kill him? Will you respond like the crowds of people that had free lunch and decide to follow him for more free lunch? Or will you follow him like the disciples who are willing to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him? Not everyone who followed Moses in the wilderness made it to the promised land. There were some who were killed on the spot for their sin. There were those who died of old age in the desert for their disobedience. And there were the few that made it all the way there. Jesus is challenging the crowds. Will you follow me all the way there? Will you? I think you will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I, I'm humbled by the fact that you've made me one of the teachers of your church. I still feel constantly as I read the scriptures that I'm just learning a lot of these stories. And yet, I want to share this with people who will listen. I want them to see you in these stories. I feel like as if you've revealed this knowledge to me, it changes the way I worship. It changes the intimacy of how I follow you. When I see that you revealed yourself in so many ways that even I've never seen. I think you've revealed yourself, Lord Jesus, in this past couple years in our church through the pain that we've went through and yet your faithfulness to take care of us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this church family who's persevered and endured so much. For the people in this room, Lord Jesus, who follow you because of the perks of following you, would they see who you really are? For the people in this room who simply attend these services, who go through these motions because it's what they were raised with or it's what's expected of them. If that's the reason why they're here, Lord Jesus, would you reveal your identity to them? Save your king, redeemer, master. Would you show them these things? Lord, and for those who are here because they've chosen to deny themselves and follow you, who've received your salvation, the forgiveness of sins, would you bind us together in your love as we praise you for who you've made yourself clear to be? Thank you for the gospel of grace that all of us have fallen short of your glory. That since Adam, all of us have been filled with sin and brokenness, no righteousness to be found in us. And yet you gave your son to be the righteous one, to be the only fitting sacrifice, the only one who could fulfill the law, to give his life for the covering of my sin. That if I would choose, and if I believe, and if other people would choose, and if they would believe, they would be made right in your eyes. They would be justified. 
and they would be forgiven and set free. Lord Jesus, would that happen in this place and would it happen in people's hearts if they have not chosen to believe that and to follow you? Would today they ask for forgiveness, admitting their lack of power and then acknowledging your incredible power? Would they trust in you, not only as the one who covers their mistakes, but then leads them as their king? And would the people in this room be equipped with boldness? Jesus, give us boldness to follow you wherever you take us, to be obedient in the areas that you've called us. Would we live our lives in such a way, Lord Jesus, that it glorifies you and that it makes you known to people? God, we offer ourselves to you. We are your church. We are your bride. Would you lead us in the paths of righteousness? Would you make us lights in this dark world to encourage people and point them home? Would revival, Lord, break out in our community and in our city, in our own families? Would this mean everything to us because you mean everything to us? Lord Jesus, dismiss your church with your blessing and give them power through the Holy Spirit to be effective ministers and ambassadors of the gospel wherever they go. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you, so we pray this prayer in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You're dismissed. Have a great week.